Welcome to the Oboe's True to the Trail podcast, where we explore the beauty and power of the outdoors through voices in the Oboe's world, from Bozeman and beyond. From the gear we use and the people who build them, to the places we love and the people who help us enjoy and protect them, we'll learn what being true to the trail means to them. I'm your host, Rich Hahn, Marketing Director at Oboe's. Today, I'm talking with Superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, Cam Shawley. Superintendent Shawley has worked in the National Park Service for the better part of the past 29 years, including his previous stint as the National Park Service's Midwest Regional Director. He also has a time at Yosemite National Park. Shawley is a U.S. Army veteran who served in both infantry and combat military police assignments. He earned a bachelor's degree in management from St. Mary's College of California. He holds a master's degree in environmental management from Duke University and is a graduate of Harvard University's Senior Executive Fellows Program. He talks to us today about the challenges and opportunities of managing the iconic Yellowstone National Park. So let's get started. Today I'm excited to be joined by Superintendent Cam Shawley, who's the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, a little place down the road that uh, that we love, certainly here in Bozeman. And uh, Superintendent Shawley, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing great, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we uh, we were talking a little bit before recording about you know Yellowstone's obviously a really important part of what we do here at Oboes and you know getting out on the trail and in the great outdoors and it's been a big inspiration for everything we've done over the past 13 years. Um, your you've had a, a storied career in public service and national park service certainly over the handful of a bunch of years, but I'm going to go ahead and, and and say I doubt you've faced anything sort of like what. COVID, the COVID curveball is kind of thrown your way. How, you know, I know, I know some lodgings been shut down or a lot of it. And mm -hmm. how, how has your world been torn asunder by this? Well, I think we're all kind of navigating this together. It's affecting everyone um, a little bit the same and a little bit differently. I think there's no playbook for either closing or reopening national parks during a pandemic. So we've, uh, I think, done a good job of uh, really communicating well with our partners in the state level and the local communities and counties uh, with our business partners in the park. And, you know, uh, as of today, at least, I think we've threaded the needle about as well as we we could have. I mean, that you normally, you know, if you rewind back to uh, March, uh, you wouldn't normally see a lot of consensus amongst our stakeholders around the park in a decision to recommend closing Yellowstone, but that's exactly what happened. I'd hoped for that same level of consensus to reopen. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't necessarily the case. And <clears throat> there was uh, a lot of different opinions about when to open and how to open and uh, different health officer opinions, different different opinions of the governors for good reason. Um, you know, Wyoming felt they were open to, uh, ready to open a little earlier than Montana. Uh, you know, for instance, Park County, Wyoming had one case uh, when, when back in, in May and Gallatin County had like 160 or something. So there was a, a difference of opinion. We, we struck a balance, opened Wyoming gates for two weeks. That wasn't super popular in Montana, but people generally understood through the communications that we had with them. Opened all five gates June 1st. And then we've slowly, you know, we agreed on a very conservative approach initially and with the mindset that if we could 
make some tough decisions in May and June, it would give us the best opportunity to have a good, you know, July, August and September. And uh, we've seen the spikes around the counties so far, nothing that's been necessarily directly attributed to increased visitation or the park opening per se. Uh, but we're mindful of that and trying to ensure we do not go too far too fast and that we have plans to kind of stabilize where we are right now with the limited number of facilities open. We, we have uh, over the last three weekends uh, hit 100% of our vehicle entry numbers uh, compared to last year. So the visitation started off slow, but is kicked into gear. You know, the team here in Yellowstone is doing a phenomenal job, not just the Park Service team, but our concession partners. And uh, we're all in this together and we'll see what happens. You have a long, like I said before, a pretty long history. You've been working at Yosemite and a, and a bunch of different parts of your career. But but Yellowstone is a unique place. Obviously, you're in three states. You've got uh, three very passionate states with with different um sort of different philosophies on managing everything from, you know, tourism to, to wildlife. Is this, has this highlighted the challenges of, of being the superintendent of Yellowstone and in all of the different, both government agencies and border towns and all of this, things that are really, really reliant upon, uh, upon what you guys do? Well, it's a balance. Uh, you know, obviously parks that sit in multiple jurisdictions, uh, especially ones that have the passion that Yellowstone does um, and the interest from uh, conservation, economic, uh, education, preservation standpoint, you have a lot of different viewpoints. Uh, our job is to kind of manage the core mission of the service as effectively as possible, really balance our, our decision making in a way that um, protects this park first and foremost. Uh, and rallies uh, not only the states that are in the park, but the country around protecting it for the future because it is such a global icon, such a, an incredible part of America. But at the same time, uh, there's some tough decisions that need to be made, and there's a large number of divergent opinions about what we should be doing and how we should be doing it in any number of different areas. Uh, and I found the best way to to really manage through that is to develop the closest uh, personal relationships with these stakeholders, whether it's business owners and gateways or governors or senators or, um, you know, public in general, be as transparent as possible about what we're trying to do, uh, where those trade-offs need to occur, why we're doing things, making sure that what we're doing makes sense or is at least explainable and defensible, even if not everybody agrees with it. And that's, that's a fun and a challenging part of this job for sure. I bet. You talk, if you think about in your perspective, the role of national parks in our world, and I'm, in, I'm interested both on your take and what you think that role is maybe in maybe in how it's diverged over your career and your exposure to Yellowstone. And I think what started maybe back in the eighties, if I'm from what I'm reading and, and earlier in your life, and now going back into Yellowstone as the, as a superintendent, I'm wondering if that, what your perspective on the role of these national parks is in our world. Well, I, mean, I think they represent some of the very best of America. Uh, they're very symbolic in all of their different forms of, of different aspects of American history, of uh, 
the, the incredible resources that this country has to offer the public um, icons that are uh, worth protecting, um, worth investing our efforts and contributions now for the protection in the future that they need. Um, I think we set the standard globally from the standpoint of uh, the best national park system in the world. I think um, I was in South Korea back in 2017, giving some speeches uh, uh, around the country there and touring some of their parks. And, you know, I, I didn't know I was coming into this job at, at that point, but uh, everywhere I went, there was questions about Yellowstone and Yosemite and Grand Canyon and, and how can their system uh, emulate some of the things that we're doing. And we do a lot of things really well. We have done a lot of things well. We, we, we've done some things that aren't, aren't the greatest necessarily. A lot of lessons learned from the past, but it's a very strong system. Uh, we need to progress in many areas from the standpoint of our organizational management structure, our, uh, our financial management, how we prioritize. Uh, but it's a tremendous system. It's, it's uh, something that Americans can be very, very proud of. And it's something that's uh, very worth our time and attention to continue to uh, protect and do everything possible to, um, you know, manage effectively into the future. I, uh, when I was talking to our friend David Quammen a couple of days ago about Yellowstone, he's written quite a bit about the park. We talked about this notion of paradox of the cultivated wild about how do you preserve all these wild spaces, but yet also showcase them because there's a benefit to showcasing them. And, and you just spoke to some of them about, you know, there are a, a sort of representational of our American culture and we believe in sort of, you know, showcasing that. How, how does that play in your, in your mind and in, in your current position? Well, I think it's probably one of the most challenging parts of the Park Service mission is the balance between uh, the conservation preservation roles that we play that are our predominant mandate with the uh, enjoyment aspects of uh, protecting the resources and then allowing for, to, your, to use your term, them to be showcased and enjoyed by not only the American public, but the global public. And... <clears throat> You know, I think that that's easier in certain places than others. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, there are, this park is 2.2 million acres, about 3,500 square miles. It's bigger than, you know, Rhode Island and Delaware put together. Uh, the, the road corridor in this park makes up about 1% of the acreage. Uh, the developed areas within the park make up about another 6% or so. Um, conservatively, 95% of the 4 million visitors that come here every year um, never get more than a half a mile away from that 6 or 7% I just mentioned. And so the vast majority of this park <clears throat> never sees a visitor. Um, I've been in the backcountry a, a lot, uh, not only since I've been here as a superintendent, but um, previously. And I've, I've actually uh, not seen a park that uh, the public disappears so quickly once you get off the road corridor. And so we have major issues in some of these parks. And obviously, I was the chief of ranger operations in Yosemite about 18 years ago. And similarly, I think uh, high 90% 
of the visitation to Yosemite spend something like 85% of their time in Eastern Yosemite Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's another example where, you know, you've got a large park, you've got some incredible resources. You've got the high, the, the, the places that are most popular, like old faithful or, you know, half dome or, you know, those types of things or the South rim of the grand Canyon. And you end up spending a lot of time and attention on those particular areas because that's where the majority of the people that are there to enjoy uh, the resources go. Uh, but what spins out of that sometimes is a, a narrative that, say, parks are being overrun by visitors. You know, our visitation went from 280 million in the system uh, to about 330 million in a five year period largely because of the find your park campaign, which was a, a good campaign. Yeah, it worked pretty well, apparently. <laughs> yeah, no, it did. And people found their park. We told them to, and they, we, and we, or we asked them to find their park and, and they did. And our visitation went up by 50 million. Um, we weren't ready for that in many places. Um, you know, in, the, in parks like Glacier and Yellowstone that translated to about a million more people per year coming to each one of these parks. Uh, staffing levels have remained about the same. Our, you know, we're, we're, we're continuing to work through that. But I think it's important, back to your question, of the balance is that you, uh, that we look at the problem uh, in the proper context. The health of the Yellowstone ecosystem is superb right now. Arguably, the Yellowstone ecosystem is in healthier condition than it has been in well over 100 years. Uh, you know, we, if you rewind, you know, we killed all the wolves, uh, we killed the, all the grizzlies, we nearly killed all the bison, um, you know, a hundred years ago, roughly, uh, we, uh, were allowing, uh, people to feed grizzlies out of their hands even 50 years ago. And this, we've put the pieces back together very successfully, not, not the park service alone, but the American public uh, the Park Service with the support of the American public. And uh, we have a, an incredibly healthy ecosystem that transcends the Yellowstone boundary. I think that's another important point is the cooperative conservation efforts that are done with our, our, our federal partners, our state partners, our local partners are ex extremely important to how we manage for the future. But, you know, when I get asked about the impacts of the enjoyment and, and the risk of enjoyment to protecting resources and conservation. Uh, there are a small number of places in this park where the people coming to visit are actually in any way, shape or form seriously threatening uh, the resources of this park. Mm -hmm. And people shouldn't confuse traffic jams with the park being overrun uh, by visitors. And so you know, we, we also need a strategy on how we most effectively look at how that balance is made. And what I mean by that is uh, we regularly will kind of say, well, in the abstract, more visitors equates automatically to more resource impacts. That can be true, but a lot of times we don't have the data and information to back that statement up. Um, our our uh, strategy here in, in Yellowstone that's developing right now uh, really is, sets a foundation for, I think, very strong decision making uh, in the future. And it's focused in kind of four primary areas. One is 
what are the, the true impacts of increased visitation on the resources of this park? Um, so where, where are those impacts happening? Uh, what actions need to be taken to uh, mitigate or eliminate uh, or prevent those, those impacts? Um, and that's, that's a really big one that we're working on a lot of data gathering, um, both from a macro level and a micro standpoint. Uh, so two, so that's one. Two is what are the impacts on staffing infrastructure and operations? I mean, you put a million more people per year in this park, uh, you've got a million more people flushing toilets, more, million more people on the roads and bridges, um, million more people that could potentially have heart attacks or law enforcement issues or whatever the case might be. So that that's a, that's something that has to be uh, looked at as well. Uh, three, what's the impact on visitor experience? What do the visitors think of their visits here? And what we found, because my predecessor did a very good job of of uh, establishing some of the most comprehensive visitor use surveys in the Park Service's history, is that through a 2016 and 2018 survey, uh, that visitors are actually extremely happy uh, with their experience here. And whereas the locals and the employees are frustrated regularly sitting in traffic, 70% of the visitors to this park last year were first-time visitors. Coming, wow, to that's really yeah, coming to Yellowstone's a bucket list type of thing. Uh, they've never seen a bison in the wild. Many of them never seen elk in the wild. And when they do, they're going to stop their car and they're going to get out and they're enjoying that moment. Now, the the local guide fisherman who's been in the park every week for the last 30 years or me trying to get from a meeting in Mammoth to Old Faithful or something that's in a hurry, I'm frustrated by that. And I, I think that the park should reduce, you know, that makes a mindset that the, there's too much traffic in, in some people's minds. Uh, but the, for the visitors that are enjoying that, that's what they came for. Um, now, I'm not saying that they want to sit in traffic necessarily, but they're not as affected, I think, as sometimes as we think they are. And so really trying to focus on what, and, but there are, there are a, lot of good in, a lot of good information in, in areas that we need to focus on from that survey, uh, from those surveys, you know, like, we don't have a big enough bathroom at Norris. Uh, the bathrooms aren't clean enough uh, at this location or that location. Uh, the boardwalks don't have enough capacity for the number of people traveling on them. Uh, and so the, the visitor experience is that third pillar of that strategy. And then the fourth one is what are the impacts on the gateway communities and how do we work together, understanding that what we do in the park affects the gateways and vice versa to really uh, take af uh, actions uh, and plan efforts that are complementary and work together for mutual benefits. And so I think as we progress with the right information and data gathering and we develop the actions that are, are, are necessary uh, in each one of those areas, we're going to be on a very good trajectory. The last thing I'll say on that is I, I regularly get a uh, are you going to establish a visitation cap? Uh, we need less oh, people, sure. less people in the park, reservation systems, things like that. In fact, um, you know, Rocky Mountain, for instance, during this COVID, reduced the vehicular traffic by uh, to sixty percent of normal. And I think if you look at a spectrum of of action, and over on the left side you were doing nothing, and over on the right side you were um, implementing visitation caps and things like that, some, you know, more 
substantial actions. Uh, I don't think you, it's smart for you to jump automatically to visitation caps and reservation systems as being uh, the only action that can reduce traffic jams and congestion or other problems that you have. Um, we've implemented a range of actions along that spectrum that have substantially helped. In many areas, we had done nothing in the past. And so I think there's a progression of, of action that we take in those four categories I mentioned that, um, you know, maybe ultimately you get to that point where, yeah, you got to look at something as, as drastic as visitation caps or corridor caps or whatever, but we're not at that point right now. And, you know, I, I get questioned a lot about Zion, um, you know, yeah. recently, like I said, Rocky, and I, and I, what my, my response the other day to Rocky was, and I think it's fine. You know, they, they implemented a 60% vehicular cap. Rocky gets, uh, and Zion for that matter, get a half million more visitors than we do each year here in Yellowstone. And my question was, how did, uh, Rocky come up with 60%? And, you know, what they did was basically take the total number of parking spaces that they have, um, divided it in half and then added 10%. Um, in, in a way to kind of thin out the traffic and visitation to the park. And, you know, that every park's different. Not, it's not a one size fits all thing. But I asked the question, what's what's worse, 60 percent of, um, of of the cars that normally come into um, Rocky traveling on 74, so 60 percent of 4.5 million visitors traveling on 74 miles, which is how many miles Rocky has, or 100% of 4 million visitors traveling on 350 miles. Yeah. And the action, you know, so this is this park's eight times bigger than Rocky. It's 15 times the size of Zion. They've all done good jobs. There's good, there's good solutions that, 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 that fit certain places at certain times. That doesn't mean that just because one park implements a a mandatory shuttle system or a reservation cap that all parks need to do that. And so, you know, as a long answer to your question, but it's dynamic. There's a lot of factors for us to think about. And the bottom line is if we're going to make some of these decisions and investments in the future that we need to know what we're talking about and have a strategy. I, I, people I used to go uh, in the park often. I was a, a fishing guide in the park for several years and I adore the park and people would say, well, where should I go? to get away from the crowds. And I'd usually say a half mile away from any road. Yeah. Um, Cause that's your point of, if you just get on your feet, I imagine to me, that's natural because I'm a you know hiker. I'm used to being in the mountains and I'm used to more wild places than your average person. Um, certainly not the wildest human out there, but what there's, there's gotta be barriers. I imagine people don't want to get out of the car. Are they, are they perhaps fearful of wildlife? Are they perhaps, um, they just, it's just a foreign world to them. You say 70% new visitors. It's probably like going to a different planet for some people in a beautiful manner, I imagine. But, um, there's this sort of weird thing about staying to the road in Yellowstone. And, and is it, maybe it's because it's too wild. I hadn't thought of that before. Well, you know, what I would say is that, um, you see that dynamic in a lot of parks. Uh, it, it's probably more prevalent in parks like Glacier or Yellowstone, where if you're not careful, you can get killed. Um, yeah. You know, that that obviously can be mitigated. But, there, you know, I think there's a couple factors there. One is, um, you know, people normally have a schedule uh, that they're on. 
a lot of folks are coming here with their families and little kids and grandparents or, or whatever. So you might have, you know, some mobility issues there. They're trying to be a very, very large park, usually at a uh, short amount of time. I think our average length of stay is about 2.8 days in that range. Um, and so that, you know, and then it's a lot of work if you're, you know, if you do have, you know, it's one thing if it's you and I grabbing a backpack and a fly rod and some bear spray and we, we're familiar and we've been out and there's a comfort level there and we go out and go wherever we want to go. It's another thing, I think, if um, you're not familiar and you're not a backpacker, maybe, which a lot of people aren't. And mm -hmm. the most comfortable place for them to see this park is from the road. That's, you know, we could all work on getting people more and be outdoors in the backcountry and that kind of thing. But I don't think you ever probably erase that, that dynamic of, you know, the car is safe. The car is home base. The car has got all of our stuff and uh, we're going to, we may venture some ways away from it, but largely we're going to stay uh, as close as possible. And I will say, you know, when, having been a backcountry ranger in Yosemite also, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, grandeur of Yosemite is unbeatable. Um, the wildness of Yellowstone, uh, when you start comparing and contrasting going into the backcountry Yosemite versus the backcountry of Yellowstone. I spent my first two years in the deep backcountry and thoroughfare here in Yellowstone. Um, there's no comparison from a mindset standpoint. I mean, when you go into Yellowstone and to the backcountry, you got to be paying attention and you're aware, uh, much more so of the dangers, uh, complacency is, is not, does not set in as, as easily in this park as maybe it does in, in some places uh, like Yos Yosemite and others. But, you know, the, the, these parks, you know, they all, a lot of diversity and variety. They're all incredible in their own way. Uh, and they all have uh, very similar and, and in some ways some very different challenges. Uh, but I think that the American public uh, wants to be able to access the parks in the way that fits them the best. And for some people that's staying close to their car, for some people that's getting into the backcountry, for some people that's getting on a boat. Um, and our job is to really try to balance that as much as possible, allow for that access, but at the same time, uh, not, not, not turning it into a free for all and, um, you know, ensuring that we, we strike that balance in our decision-making. Yeah. The, the, the thoroughfare, by the way, is, is, you know, this is necessarily a question, but that is one wild place. I, I was lucky enough to go on about a week trip back there last year and you're on your game back there. Cause that is about as wild as we get in the lower 48. It's incredible country for sure. Um, we, this, this doesn't mean to be a shameless plug and that's not the point of our interview, but Oboe's company I work for and the podcast we're on is did this Yellowstone boot with Yellowstone forever, which is a nonprofit organization that supports a lot of initiatives in the park. They've kind of run into some funding issues in, in COVID in this year. And that's the question is not necessarily about that, but it's about one of your priorities I read was about building these coalitions and partnerships. And you talk about the key is to be, to become personal, to get personal relationships with people. But how do you see these partnerships between private industry and nonprofits and the park service and all of that coming together for the greater good? Well, I think it's a great question. And uh, first of all, I really appreciate the partnership with Obos and, and uh, what you all have done to help support the park through, through Yellowstone Forever. 
Uh, you know, I think that uh, Yellowstone Forever, is, is I'm sure some of the listeners know, has experienced some substantial issues uh, over the over the last several years that really came about from a, a merger of the former Yellowstone Park Foundation and Yellowstone Association and everybody was trying to do a good job and really turn Yellowstone forever into a high performing organization. Uh, the organization got out in front of its headlights, uh, obviously really overspent a little bit too much in the first uh, couple of years and is, is in a process now of restructuring and, and obviously trying to get itself out from underneath, uh, some debt and liabilities that's, that have been accrued over the years. I, I feel confident that we're going to be on a good pathway there. Uh, but there's going to be some some changes that are going to need to be looked at moving forward. Um, but I think that the some of the strength of the the part, partnership portfolios of the Park Service and obviously Yellowstone included in that comes from the diversity of of the types of partners that we have: individuals uh, who are passionate, uh, corporations that are passionate, private businesses. Uh, you know the the range of partners that we have needs to really represent um, various aspects of, of the American society and really try to tap into those that have the right types of ethics uh, that we need to support the park moving forward in a variety of different areas, be it in education or conservation, uh, you know, infrastructure improvements, you name it. Uh, and you get that from uh, talking to people, uh, like I said, tapping into their interest in the park, in the park service, um, and then really focusing on building relationships that connect them and therefore their networks, whether that network is uh, other donors, whether that network is other community members, uh, and try to build on those the strengths uh, of those different groups and, and individuals. And uh, you hope that you build something that's very worthwhile, uh, that people um, want to be more and more a part of, that people understand the value of their contributions, whether it's a corporation or uh, OVOS or, or you, know, um, you know, an individual or you name it. And, you know, that's, that's a chore. Because there's a lot of competing priorities out there. People have a lot of things that they can focus on and give to. Uh, and you know, but Yellowstone and, and the symbolism of Yellowstone, which really does transcend Yellowstone itself, I think is something that um, we haven't taken full advantage of, that we can do a lot better job of building more partnerships, stronger partnerships. And that's what we're working on now. Well, that's great. I'm reading also about some of your some of your priorities and you, you, you talked about some of them a little bit earlier in your strategy talk, but one was about kind of ramp up, you know, science and, and resource programs for your, for your team. So your team's better informed. Is that, is it, you see that as a trend in national park management? I mean, not necessarily that you, that previously people weren't looking at science, but when you're facing things like climate change and some of these really big issues that are affecting places uh, in the park, how have you tried to move this more into a science-based program? Well, first of all, we have some of, some of the most incredible scientists and PhDs and, and, you know, a lot of them here in the park, I mean, mm -hmm. at the top of their game, um, 
uh, you know, Doug Smith is, you know, a really humble guy, but probably one of the best world, uh, wolf experts in the world. Um, we have people that have been here a long time that have done a tremendous job in helping, whether in Doug's case, uh, solidify the reintroduction of the wolves, uh, from the mid nineties or, uh, recover the grizzlies, um, get the bison numbers back to where they need to be. Uh, and, and it's, a, it's an incredible team. Um, I think if I had an observation being here for 18, 20 months that, uh, we can still, we can do a better job of integrating a lot of the efforts of the individual programs. And what I mean by that is everybody's doing great. Uh, but if you take climate change, for instance, and we have a, a phenomenal, albeit small climate change unit, uh, how, how do we make sure that the research they're doing, uh, the impacts climate change is having on resources are not kept in their silo, but that they um, transcend that unit and become a part of decision-making and understanding in some of these other key programmatic areas that are very, very important uh, to the ecosystem of, of Yellowstone. And, you know, I, I use this example um, regularly. You know, if you look at a climate change impact like invasive species, like cheatgrass, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, you know, the Park Service has done a great job in some areas with some of our, our policies on adaptation, on um, how, how we look at, you know, what we're going to do in the future. Um, but we've also been very good at kind of watching, uh, and waiting. And uh, even though it's not directly correlated, if you take the lake trout, um, the proliferate proliferation of lake trout in the, in Yellowstone Lake and the incredible progress that's been made, uh, in that area, uh, you know, we first started seeing lake trout in the nineties and we thought we were doing a good job and, you know, we, we weren't really, we realized they were a threat to the cutthroats, but we weren't, we weren't, well, there was not a huge sense of urgency in the late nineties and even the early two thousands. And then we really started seeing, uh, the cutthroat numbers decline substantially. And at that point realized if we don't do something, we're going to have a, a keystone species in this park blink out and, we got on top of that, you know, 2 million a year for the last six, six years, probably another four years at that investment level. Uh, we've got a goal of getting the lake trout down to a hundred thousand or less. Um, we've got an exceptional crew and a group of partners that are helping make that happen. But, and it's not a blame thing. It's about, uh, how do we do a better job of preventing something like that from happening in the future? How do we do a better job of predicting where those impacts might happen? And I go back to invasive species, you know, cheatgrass is right on our front doorstep here in Gardner. I mean, it's all over, uh, the Valley there and it's starting to come into the park and we, do we watch, hmm. uh, do we sit here and wait for it to proliferate the entire Northern range until we take an action? Or do we take some more aggressive steps now based on science, based on, 
um, other things that have happened in the past and recognize that if we let it go too far too, uh, for too long, it's going to be much, much harder to pull back. And like it back on the, on the lake trout, you know, we're using some very antiquated and sophisticated means of eradicating lake trout. Um, I mean, we're, you know, developing the, 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 the group, the group has done a phenomenal job. Um, and they're gill netting out there, which is kind of an antiquated technique, but it's been, been very effective. Uh, but we're looking at better ways that we can attack spawning sites. Um, you know, we've got these pellets that we've found can deoxygenate the, the um, water where the eggs are laid and kill the eggs before they hatch. Uh, and but then now, how do you disperse that? And we got to disperse that over. A wide area and we're looking at kind of a, a crop duster almost i hate to say it um but in order to get maximum impact to kill lake trout uh, we're going to have to do some things that might shock the conscience a little bit and you know we wouldn't necessarily have hoped that we would have to do something like that but that's what's happened now that it's gotten so far out of control and we want to contain it and reduce etc and same thing with the cheatgrass i mean are we going to do small spot treatments on invasive species and have limited to no impacts, or do we do something bigger early, even if it seems like it might be overkill in order to uh, get the results that we want and not have the spread. And so I think there's a variety of different things that we need to be doing um, even better in this park from the standpoint of use of science. I think there's a, a wide range of additional um, things that we need to be doing with our partners, uh, both at the federal level and state level outside the park. Uh, you know, the state, you know, I'm the chair of the, of the Greater Yellowstone Coordinating Committee this, this next couple of years. Um, you know, we've invited the states. And what I found in my first year and a half on there, and it's a, that's a great group of partners as well, but was here we were having a ton of conversations about conservation priorities, many of which uh, were directly managed by the states once they transcended the Yellowstone boundary. And yet they weren't necessarily sitting at the table with us. And so when we talk about pulling people together, you know, there's a lot of capacity outside of Yellowstone, outside of the park service that we, we need to maximize. Uh, and whether that's in the forest service or whether that's in BLM or the fish and wildlife service or the state conservation agencies, uh, we need to do a better job of figuring out, um, how do we share our information to the best degree possible? How do we align our priorities, especially where we have common interest? And how do we execute best um, using our collective abilities and capacity and really kind of break those silos down um, and, and, and do a better job for the future of this entire ecosystem, not just Yellowstone? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, people wouldn't be too surprised to read about one of your objectives being to strengthen the Yellowstone ecosystem. You just spoke about it and the fact that it doesn't end at the park borders, but also how that relates to the park's vast cultural and historic resources. And that's a side I don't think that many people see that's also under your guise and something I know that from what I read is very important to you. Yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> this park has got, you know, the, the probably the best diversity of cultural, natural, and geologic resources that I've seen in any park. Um, like I said, every park has something special, but when you look at uh, everything that we have in the history of 
whether it's uh, Native American Indian tribes here or the U.S. Cavalry here in Fort Yellowstone early on uh, or the incredible geology and the Geyser Basin or Old Faithful or Norris or around the park for that, that matter. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, we always talk about balancing and science in regards to natural resources, but, you know, we've got an incredible geology team. Uh, we've got an incredible group of historians and, you know, archaeologists and others uh, that focus on cultural resources. And so uh, some of those get forgotten a little bit because this is such a high profile natural resource park that we have got to make sure that we understand the importance and the role that all of these resources play in the park and that we've got the right uh, level of attention financially and otherwise placed on them. When you look ahead, you're, what would you say, 18, 20 months into your, your job, and I'm going to go ahead and project that you're here for 10 more years, and you're um, who knows if that's the case, but we're going to suggest that when you look out 10 years or five years or whatever your timeline is, what do you, what do you see for the park? What do you, what do you hope for it perhaps? Well, I think first and foremost is leaving it in better condition than when I got here. Um, I think we've got priorities that are set right now that are allowing this team to make that happen in a more organized way. I will most likely not be here for another 10 years. I mean, this is, uh, um, you can come back and visit. Yeah. I'll come back and visit. Exactly. Um, this is a job that you can be in good grace in one day and out of grace the next. I'm very cognizant of that in my sure. focuses on making the best decisions possible for now in the future and to, um, really be able to point to our attentiveness to the areas that are the most impacting and important and that need the most attention. So I think, in, you know, first of all, if you said 10 years from now, you know, well, I don't want the park to have regressed, uh, degressed anyway, in any way, shape or form uh, from the standpoint of our resource protection, the strength of the ecosystem at this point. Uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned with some of the financial structuring in this park that needs to be uh, reallocated in certain areas. And we're going to be doing that to ensure that we've got, and I'll give you an example. You know, you, I just mentioned the wolf, the uh, Yellowstone forever financial problems. Uh, the wolf program in this park uh, relies heavily, uh, very, very heavily more than any other program really, maybe except for the native fish program on philanthropy. And what's happened over time is that the federal a, a budget allocation has been diminished in the wolf program because they were getting all this money from philanthropy. Well, as we just saw, um, and what's happened is that if philanthropy starts to decline or goes away for some reason, and you've got a critical program like the wolf program heavily dependent upon it, then you have a real serious issue with the wolf program being able to do what it needs to do. And so I, I, I feel like there needs to be a, a much better way of dispersing some of the, of the inherently federal responsibilities from a, a funding standpoint to ensure these programs that need the financial capacity to sustain themselves in the future. And I want to make sure that that happens so that 10 years from now and beyond, I'm not 
that that particular program or programs are not solely relying on other pe- people's generosity in order to survive. And so we're, you know, we just restructured the park um, in February with our operating divisions. We had an operating division that had two districts, another one had five districts, another one had seven districts. They're all in different geography. Um, so we created a, a three district uh, framework. Uh, each each division operating divisions on their own on the same geographic boundaries. They've got consistent leadership structures. Uh, and then we're working to invest more money into uh, the line uh, rangers and maintenance workers and education rangers and, and that kind of thing. And so I think there's, there's a lot of things that we're doing from the standpoint of setting a lot of these priorities that are tethered to sound organizational and financial management that needs to take place in order to solidify them for the future. And that will help pro- ensure that 10 years from now and beyond that we have a stable organization that's um, you know, solvent and uh, financially capable of, of executing the mission they, that they need to. I think um, you know, we've got you know, one of the, of the top five strategic priorities for the park is really investing in infrastructure. Um, you know, we reported out uh, over a half billion in, in infrastructure needs. We have a multi-billion dollar asset portfolio. Uh, we think that number is a lot higher. Um, we have a lot of work to do with, you know, if you look at Fort Yellowstone here, which is one of the most historic districts in the country, um, there's tens of millions of dollars of work that needs to be done to these historic structures. Um, <laughs> housing for employees is a big one. You know, we're, we're investing about 37 million and removing every single trailer from this house, from this park. Some of these trailers have been around since the 1960s. Um, some of the most horrific. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, I mean, some of the most horrific employee housing you've ever seen. And we've got, you know, we've got all those trailers coming out either already out or will be out in the next 12 months and replacing them with high quality uh, housing for the future. And that has a lot of effects on a lot of things. You know, whether it's workforce, attracting good talent, retaining good talent, you know, you get people to come back the next year. So many people say, yeah, I love Yellowstone, but I don't live in that 1963 trailer because it was mold all over the place and mice infested. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, a lot of infrastructure needs that we've got. We had $100 million for the project set for this year. We're executing on about $60 million of them. We pulled a few back just because we didn't know what was going on with COVID. We're just about to break ground on the north entrance uh, project down here in Gardner. Um, we've got probably $100 million in wastewater treatment facility improvements that need to be made for the future. Uh, we've got an enormous amount of, of conservation and cultural and geologic resource priorities that we need to focus on. And uh, so for me, you know, it's those areas where they're functioning well. How do I make sure I, I protect and, and uh, sustain that performance of, of, of that part of the organization in areas where things are not working well. Why is that and what can we do to improve it and really try to get everybody, uh, whether it's an operation or whether it's a, a program up to a level where they can do what they need to do and have the resources uh, to do a, a, an effective job. All of this is uh, fascinating and you have a heck of a job ahead of you. And I'm wondering if, if, if sometimes you wonder if you have the hardest job in the world or the most amazing job in the world. Well, it's a privilege to be in this job. Um, 
the job is not fine on a regular basis, just mm -hmm. to be honest. And then sometimes it's be like, wow, it's cool. You're the superintendent of Yellowstone. Um, I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy the partners. I enjoy the challenges that we face on, on all of the different topics we just talked about and beyond. Um, but it's not, it's, and, you know, I, I look forward to coming to work to, to work with these people and, and this team here and, and make progress moving forward, but it's not necessarily as enjoyable as, as some people might think. But like I said, it is, it is a privilege to be in it. Yeah, I'm sure on paper people think you have the dream job. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, when, you, when I was a fishing guy, people thought I had a dream job. And well, you know, you don't know. There's a lot of a lot of work and anxiety in, in most jobs. But I really appreciate um, you, Superintendent Shelley, joining us today and talking about your experience in the park and all the things you're facing there. And I'm sure glad that you're there watching after it for us. And and thank you for your support of Oboes and in our uh, launch of our uh, new boot with with Yellowstone forever and looking forward to working with them additionally and, and look forward to meeting you in person because this is over, over the internet, but uh, look forward to meeting you in person and getting off that, getting off one of those roads and taking a nice hike. You bet. Come up anytime, Rich. Appreciate you and, and Obos as well, as I said. Um, and uh, I continue to encourage people to give, uh, there's no shortage of opinions out there, but continue giving us feedback and how we can do better uh, areas that we need to focus on, partnerships that uh, we need to build on, and uh, we're all in this together. I think people can be very proud of the the team here, of Park Service employees and partners, and, uh, and everybody's trying to do the best job possible. Like I said in the beginning, it's it's worthwhile, and um, you know something that we can't do alone. So we appreciate uh, everyone's partnership and, and input. So thanks a lot, Rich, and hope you have a good weekend. You as well. We'll look forward to chatting with you soon. Have a great weekend yourself. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the True to the Trail podcast. And special thanks to Superintendent Cam Shawley of Yellowstone National Park. If you want to check out Oboz's new Yellowstone boot, which benefits Yellowstone forever, talked about in this podcast, visit oboesfootwear.com. Oboz is proud to support Yellowstone forever to help ensure that Yellowstone National Park remains for generations to come. For any comments about this show or suggestions, for future episodes, shoot us a note at podcast at obosfootwear.com. Have a great day, be safe, and remember, stay true to the trail. <laughs>